Well, hello. We are here with the Future of Women podcast. So thrilled for our first episode to be with Annie She, amongst so many things. Wonderful human, one of my dearest friends, and a partner and GM beverage director of King Restaurant in Manhattan. Since opening four years ago, King has garnered top industry accolades from being named a New York Times top restaurant to a James Beard Award nomination. Welcome, Annie. I'm so excited to be here together. So excited to hear your voice. I know I hear it every week on the Roar Calls, but hopefully this is a less serious, more fun conversation. I know, so true. It's nice to have an escape from all of us and our daily reality. It's funny, you know, with Groundhog's Day, I think everyone sort of felt like, well, we feel that that's every day this year. So thank you for taking the time and just so thrilled. I think it's a kickoff. I obviously was a neighbor and have known you since the start of King, but for those listening that maybe aren't familiar, maybe just just the foundation for us. Tell us about King, your restaurant in New York City's West Village. Obviously such a unique type of neighborhood restaurant that expands beyond so many boundaries and categories. Another amazing attribute is that it's all female owned and mostly female run. And I would love you to set the stage for us. Paint the picture of King, its vision, and how you think it's different and been perceived as such. Yeah, sure. So we opened King around four and a half years ago. So we opened for family and friends end of August 2016. And it is run by myself and my two partners, Claire DeBoer and Jess Schabel, and actually now our fourth partners, Sadie Zimmerman Feely and they're all in the kitchen. King was all of our first restaurant. None of us had ever opened a restaurant, managed a restaurant, but we all had this dream of a very specific type of dining experience. We all met in London, so I was there working in finance, very different life. And Claire and Jess were both working at the River Cafe in London, an incredible restaurant. And I had met Claire through a mutual friend. We started doing these pop-ups together in London, eventually got the courage to both quit our jobs and move back to New York, which is where I am originally from and grew up. And my family is still here. It was definitely an incredibly steep learning curve. I get asked if I would do it again this way, and I don't know <laughs> if I would recommend it, but it was incredibly thrilling definitely the most I learned in the shortest amount of time. It took us a year from kind of being back in New York to being open, we put our heads together, started writing a business plan in September of 2015, and then we opened in August of 2016. So almost a full year. It's been an incredible journey. We wanted the menu to be a daily changing menu because we wanted to have regulars who felt like they could come and dine with us multiple times a week. We really wanted to build that community and build those relationships. We wanted King to feel like an extension of your dining room. That was really the goal, to focus on the experience of just eating delicious food, drinking delicious wine with people that you love. We didn't want it to feel fussy or we didn't want to distract from that experience. So the design of the restaurant is very minimal and clean, and it's been a wonderful almost five years now, kind of crazy to believe. And we've made some wonderful friends in our neighborhood, including yourself. And yeah, that's the, the story. For those who haven't been, you must go. For those who are regulars or devotees like myself, it really is such a gem and something so different. How do you think being run by women, you know, makes it different? Do you mm -hmm. think that's played into it? Do you think it's played into 
how you've been written on or how guests perceive the restaurant. Cause you know, as we both know, it's highly unusual, I think, to have one female ownership to female leadership across the kitchen, as well as in the front of house, particularly in wine, it's a traditionally very male-dominated. I think across our industry, leadership positions, Mm -hmm. unfortunately, still remain male-dominated. Yeah, sure. So I think when we first opened, we hired a PR company to do our opening PR, and they really wanted to push the female angle. We have been very lucky. I think Claire and Jess at the River Cafe really had wonderful mentorship and saw female leadership in the kitchen, starting with Ruthie Rogers. But we did not want that to be the main story. We never grew up in the system that you hear so many other chefs and sommeliers and just people in the industry talk about, you get locked in a walk-in coming of age. We're very lucky in that respect. And as a result, I think we run our restaurant the way we would hope to be treated. That's a very easy golden rule to live by. Everyone's heard it, but I think that is how we approach our management style. Yeah, it is distinct though. And I think when you're at King, you feel it. It's interesting what you shared about press and perception and positioning versus just wanting to be known for doing great work and and more based on substance, not gender. And I think that's been a big, I think a big debate Mm. across our industry. How do you see that sort of playing out going forward? I always say, you know, the rise of the female chef and the attention around gender inequity really started getting louder about a decade ago. And I think our generation has a very different take on it. What's your perspective? On I that? think absolutely. Like, I think it's so different now to come up as a female chef than it was a decade ago. And I think it's gotten a lot better, which is fantastic. And I think the hope is moving forward that there is less of an emphasis on gender and more of an emphasis on just being a great chef. Sometimes making those distinctions is like an easy way of not giving away too much. I think in an ideal world, you wouldn't talk about who's the best male chef and who's the best female chef. Or rather, actually take that back because you wouldn't even say who's the best male chef. It's who's the best female (laughs) chef and who's the best chef. And that kind of thing is what we need to work on in in the next couple of years. How do you see that playing out? Where do you think is the biggest area that can have an impact on that? Is it media? Is it awards? Is it how many openings are run by women? I think it's within your more local community. It's more impactful when you see people around you. Like if I were 25 again and looking to open my first restaurant, if I saw more examples of that around me in the city and in the neighborhood that I was hoping to open a restaurant, I think that would be the most encouraging thing because then you're much closer to just making that connection and having a conversation with that person or those people around their experiences. And I think that kind of closer mentorship is more impactful than media or awards. I find awards to be increasingly less important in our world than they used to be. I think they used to carry a lot of weight. And these days, I just don't think they carry the same weight as they used to, which I think is a good development. Can you say more about that? Because I I actually do agree. And I think especially this year in the pandemic has highlighted so much about the restaurant industry. You know, it's been, I keep saying sort of the year of the great reckoning. And I do think awards and accolades are a big part of it. And I think they've been sort of boiling under the surface and really hit gasket, if you will, this year. Not all listeners are industry insiders. So maybe say a little bit more about that, because I do think it's an interesting trend. Yeah, I remember growing up and 
always buying the Zagat guide every year that it came out and leafing through it and reading it and like taking down notes of restaurants that I thought looked good. I feel like that has really fallen by the wayside. And I think part of that is you don't really know how they are critiquing or scoring restaurants. So that lack of transparency, I think, is something that has been hurting their wards, especially around Michelin, not knowing who the inspectors are, what they experienced, how many times they went to a restaurant. I think transparency as a theme is something that we have come to really embrace in the past couple of years, which is fantastic. I also think that during the pandemic, critics really had to think about, and critics for like for the New York Times or for Eater or Grub Street, kind of the publications that would produce more reviews on a monthly basis than say like a Zagat or a Michelin. I feel like they had to really think about what they were critiquing and take a step back and say, people are putting their health and safety on the line to be able to keep their restaurants open and serve guests and employ their staff. So we need to maybe not think about the plating of their dish or the kind of critiques that the minor critiques that have become the main substance of so many reviews. And I think that's great because it humanizes the restaurant experience that in a way the reviews in the past five years have really been dehumanizing. Sometimes I read the reviews and I think to myself, like, have these people ever worked in a restaurant? It just seems so petty to focus on little things that maybe did detract from the ultimate experience, but there are people working really hard to try to give the best dinner or the best meal. So in a way, the pandemic has made a really great change, which is putting the emphasis back where it matters, which is the intention and the effort rather than putting a numerical score to a restaurant at the end. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think it was so, it's crazy to say revolutionary, but in so many ways it really was. So many rating sites said at the start of the pandemic, we're not going to do ratings. We're not going to put scores. How can you do that when it's really about survival and how do you take care of your teams while taking care of your guests? So, you know, and I think that is something that has been sort of an impossible equation, right? This year. So you think about the future of the industry and even more so what it means to be a neighborhood restaurant, because that really sits in a very different place mm. in the industry. A place, like you said, that you go a couple of days a week that is a high touch experience, but isn't special occasion break the bank, but it's also not about volume and cost. So in this sort of special gem niche that you find yourselves in, and, and I think King is sort of the paradigm of it, Talk about what this last year has been for you. I mean, you talked about humanity and I agree. I think, you know, again, this year has been a real sharp focus on there are guests who are always front and center in everyone's minds, but what about the people that work tirelessly to make that experience, to craft it and bring it to life? And they've never been quite as much at odds, I think, than this year. What's the experience been for you and your team as a neighborhood restaurant? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is the year where like the guest is always right. That kind of mentality, which I've never really agreed with, kind of really came to a head. And I kind of feel like that's a little bit of the legacy of the Union Square Hospitality Group restaurants. But I do think that there's absolutely a line that you have to draw in the sand where if a guest is verbally abusing your staff or putting your staff at risk because they won't put on a mask when they're at the table, 
suddenly like that equation doesn't quite work anymore. And we really felt that when we reopened for outdoor dining in July, in the month of June, we had just been doing like a little takeout window for drinks and snacks. And then in July, we decided to reopen for outdoor when the state gave us permission. And we built like a whole tented structure out there in like 48 hours. It was kind of insane. It's gorgeous though. (laughs) heated seats everyone should Thank know it. and i think when we reopened it kind of was like oh so the rules of dining have changed because we are now in a pandemic and we're reopening so what does that mean and i think for us we kind of had a conversation with the few staff members that we had working for us we hired back three people to start and the kind of crux of what we really decided on was we have to wear masks to protect the guests it feels only right that when we are at the table with them, whether that is taking an order or clearing their food or dropping their food, that we ask that the guests put on their mask for us, which, you know, and we tried it, like we mocked out a dinner scenario. We're like, okay, this isn't really not asking too much. But when we first started doing that in July, it felt like it was revolutionary and certain guests really, really rebelled at that. I think there was this attitude of like, oh, restaurants are open again. My life is normal again. I want to feel normal. What are these rules that you're making us do that are annoying and reminding us that we're still in pandemic? Like that really felt like the attitude from some people back in July and August. And it definitely was a struggle. I spoke to a lot of other restaurateurs who wanted to do the same things, but they felt like they would lose guests. It was a moment of change, like dining etiquette had changed and some people were still adjusting to that transition. Luckily, as time passed and as more people came back into the city and as we kind of became known for being a little bit stricter on some of the rules, we started attracting people who cared about that, who didn't mind that because they felt like they were being more taken care of because we were taking health and safety seriously. Now I feel like people are totally used to it. Like more restaurants have adopted this policy. And I feel like now it's become almost second nature. Like as soon as someone approaches the table, I just kind of put on my mask and take it off when they leave. And it's not, it's not so cumbersome. It's just like, it's like learning any new habit. It just takes a while to kind of figure it out. And then it becomes part of what you do when you dine out. It's like using a fork and knife. Well, I think it's so important also, again, for listeners to understand one of the challenges of what you just shared is that there wasn't a state regulation around, okay, you know, indoor dining opens, these are the rules for restaurants. There was no parallel. These are the rules for the public, right? And so it felt like a choice when really it should have been something that was sort of part of the full package. And like you said, how dehumanizing, right, to feel that the whole system is only about guest safety, but not about team safety. And I think, you know, your golden rule seems to be shining through, right? You want to treat guests as you would treat your team and vice versa. And I think it's a whole new definition for hospitality. I think that your inside out mentality is a huge shift, as you said, and I I think extraordinarily so and quite revolutionary, which is somewhat sad to think that it is a huge change, but it is. That is not the way it's been done. What's your perspective on hospitality and how this experience and the pandemic is shifting it? Where do you think the future of hospitality in that regard lies? I think that this attitude of, you know, it's not just about the guests, it's about the staff and the team as well. I think I'm hoping that that is here to stay. I think for a lot of restaurant workers, they felt like they had to speak up for themselves for the first time, because like you said, the state certainly wasn't. And that was a choice that 
the state made when they came out with their rules and regulations. If you looked to New Jersey, if you looked to Chicago, they had rules where guests had to put on masks when staff were at the table. So it's not like it wasn't being done elsewhere. I think they really felt like they had to advocate for themselves. And I think once you kind of awakened that sense of dignity for yourself in light of a pandemic, that kind of hopefully will permeate to other parts of the job. It's so important that restaurant workers feel like their job is a dignified position that is respected. In the back of house, that change has been coming for a while now. The role of a chef over the past decade, like you mentioned earlier, has become much more glamorous and exciting and prestigious than it used to be. I think the next stop for restaurants is making the role of front of house a respected position where people see a career for themselves rather than this kind of short-term stop while they're pursuing other passions. I would really love to see that kind of pride in their work and in their position that I feel like they absolutely deserve. Again, bringing back humanity and taking a more inside-out approach. It is a huge title shift, and, and I share your hope that it continues after this year. Sort of in that same vein, so we've talked sort of inside out and about the humans that make it all happen and the drive and the passion. How do you look at sort of the business side? Because I think what a lot of people may not notice, they see you floating on the floor. You truly are just this most elegant swan. I love watching you when you're in service. It's so effortless. (laughs) You make it look so easy. All of us in the industry know that it is not easy, but you also run so much of the business thinking and so much of the strategy. And on top of that wine and service and the operations, you really do so much more than I think your title and probably most people who get to watch you or interact with you probably know. What do you think taking a step sort of one step back into the business side, pivot. I, I keep saying pivot is sort of the new four letter word for 2020. It's the word you never want to hear, sort of like disrupt. You never want to hear it ever again. But you have had to pivot quite a bit doing gifting. You have an amazing custom olive oil you've done to go in a way that King has never done. You just launched delivery. As you've thought about moving through this year and some of the challenges you've had and had to adjust your model, test things. You know, you obviously prize high quality ingredients and simply prepared dishes and wine is such a big part of the experience. What's worked and what hasn't? What have the, you yeah. know, let's, I think it'd be interesting to see sort of behind the curtain of, right, this is the great year of experimentation, but in your opinion and looking back and reflecting what worked and maybe what didn't. And what did you enjoy <laughs> the most? You know, is there any, was there any experiment where you said, you know what, wow, that actually was, you know, I was forced to do it, but it actually was yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think the silver lining to this past year was the creativity that it allowed us. Like, because things were totally shambolic, it was kind of like, any idea is a great idea. Like, let's just all, whatever, you know, like, think about what you wish you could do and let's try to do it at King. So, like I mentioned, we did that, like, pickup window with little snacks to go in June. Then we did outdoor dining in July. We tested out meal kits in August. In October, November, we reopened for indoor dining, which is its own challenge. And then we dipped our toe into kind of e-commerce and retail with some products pre-holidays, like we were selling our King Blanket and our olive oil pre-sales. And we were doing a subscription wine club. And then we launched these raclette windows weekend days. 
so it's been a lot of different things and then closed indoor <laughs> yeah, dining exactly. and then re- geared up to reopen it. And just for anyone listening, just I'm going to pause you for one quick second. Did you hear that list? How long and robust? And please keep in mind that each of those in any other industry is an entirely distinct startup unto itself. So just for clarification and sort of broader yeah, context. Yeah, I mean, it was, and I'm not saying that everything was totally like banging success we just started doing delivery and pickup and that has been a very slow build for us and we veered away from delivery for a very long time because we really believe in the core values of the brand and one of that is the quality of the food and we just felt like we couldn't control the quality of delivery so we only dipped our toe into it now because things are really, really slowed down in January with kind of the sub zero freezing temperatures outside. And we were kind of faced with the decision that so many of our days of service, we were operating at below a break even number. Sorry. So we kind of thought to ourselves, well, should we be closing for a couple of days of the week because we're not, we're losing money by staying open. And we felt like that was a really tough decision to make because obviously most of our staff is hourly. And even for our salaried managers, we would have to cut pay in some way if we were to close suddenly from being open seven days a week to being open five days a week. It's a tremendous change in some people's and all of our staff's wages. So we said to ourselves, okay, well, if we can just supplement our on-premise sales a little bit with delivery, just to get to that break-even point, maybe we can keep our hours of operation the same until we can make it to March. So that was really the thinking behind starting delivery. And we've chosen to do that completely with our own staff. So we're not partnering with any third-party platforms at the moment. We're just doing it through our website. And for most nights of the week, it's the same staff that is scheduled to work will also do the delivery. So if you choose to open your door or peek out your window, you would see like the same people who brought you your food at King delivering your food to your home. And we really wanted that to be the case because I feel like in a way we actually control the quality of delivery much better that way rather than partnering with a third party delivery app. So that's been a slow burn. We are currently just doing it, you know, within a mile radius of King, but I think delivery if that's not your bread and butter it's kind of hard to make yourself known and to be really competitive i also know that right now january's just been a super slow month for everybody including the restaurants who have been doing delivery since like april of last year so i think we're really just counting down the weeks until we can get to mid march and then i feel like it won't be warm but it won't be freezing cold and hopefully we'll see a little bit more of a pickup on both delivery and dining outside. How has the move to delivery and using your own team? Again, I, I love this inside out mentality. It's again, I think just a very distinct strategy and, and way of approaching restaurants and hospitality. How was that move to sort of this whole new model? And, you know, again, keeping in mind that there's sort of freezing temperatures right now along the East coast. And, you know, obviously this is the snow season. How is that received with your team? And and what was that process um, I like? I think they were excited by it because it's additive. Like it can only make the night a little bit better. The massive difference is that we have a team member, Mariano. He 
works incredibly hard. He works six nights a week at King by his own choice and then works as a delivery person during the day. So he already was very experienced with deliveries around the city and kind of, you know, was the person we leaned on a little bit more to teach the other folks, you know, what it takes. And a number of our other staff actually were also doing deliveries in other respects. So it wasn't completely foreign, but for both weather, timing, and quality of food delivered, we've kept the radius pretty small. We opened with just West Village and Soho to start and have slowly like added mileage to the radius as we've gotten more comfortable with it. But it's a great way to keep service feeling busy. Like I'm sure you feel the same way, but there's kind of nothing worse than a really slow service where you're like watching the minutes crawl by you're like oh my god when is this night gonna end it's so much more fun and so much easier when you're kept busy so i think that's what delivery has added is like it adds a little bit more like kind of mileage behind us or like a little bit more boost to our nights when we have delivery orders just because it keeps you busy in what would otherwise be really dead nights when you would be cutting a staff for example because it is so quiet so i think it's it's doing its purpose we're obviously just, we just launched it like a couple of weeks ago. So we're continuing to build on it. We've just started adding our blankets to delivery. We've started delivering whole cakes to people as part of their delivery. So we're kind of adding on small things that you would have to otherwise get shipped to you. Mm-hmm. And it's been going well. I was going to ask, so going well so far, do you see it remaining a permanent fixture or is it sort of a, we'll see? I can't imagine once we're actually back to full capacity, I can't imagine that our kitchen or our team will have that capacity to do delivery. It only really works right now because we are so slow. But the hope is that in the future, our kitchen is tiny. You've seen it. In the future, the hope is that like we are at full capacity indoors and outdoors and we won't need delivery to kind of bolster sales. So I'm going to I'm going to make you delve into that a little bit more because I actually yesterday with a friend who's a longtime industry veteran, we had a big debate about that. And and she said, you know, she asked me, do you think delivery and a lot of these pivoted ideas, you know, are here to stay and sort of a structural shift? And I sort of shared your perspective, which is no. And largely because, you know, I think even if you're doing it on your own, it's just not the same margin business. It's not mm-hmm. the same quality. And from a team perspective, it's a lot harder, right? It's a lot harder. And I think in some ways, less rewarding, right? You don't really see someone's face when they're enjoying it and you don't get a lot of that feedback, which is, you know, what I always call the drug of hospitality, that that feedback, that warmth and that that give and take in the relationship. What's your perspective beyond King? Do you think that sort of these pivots to delivery, you know, will dissipate as we go back to the new normal? I think my answer to that is like a very logistical one, which is purely like if you have a restaurant with a kitchen that has the capacity to do full 100% indoor outdoor for your restaurant and then some, I imagine you'll keep doing delivery because why not? I think for a lot of the smaller restaurants that started doing delivery during the pandemic, we simply just don't have space or the infrastructure to allow for that. So pre-pandemic 2019, when we were doing like crazy numbers in the summer, like close to 130, 140 in the weekends, or even just like 100 covers on a busy night, our line holds three chefs and that's it. <laughs> three cooks and there's not room to squeeze in another half person. Like it's just... It's a tiny kitchen. If we're back to that kind of level of activity, 
we simply just won't have the infrastructure to do delivery. Whereas if you're a bigger restaurant and you have a huge kitchen and you're kind of slightly underutilizing it before and you've done well with delivery during the pandemic, I imagine you'll keep doing it. So I think it's that. I also think it's like how successful was your delivery? Because I've heard of restaurants who do a lot of delivery, but at the end of the day, the sales look high. The profit is very, very low because of how much third-party delivery platforms take. Sometimes up to 20, 30%. Again, for those who don't know, for most businesses, they would be aghast that a vendor took that high. Yeah, like crazy. Like it basically doesn't make sense to do delivery as a result. So I think it's individual by individual restaurant. But I think for us with this kitchen that small and a restaurant that small, we just, we couldn't do it once this pandemic is over. Like we're once we got busy again. Well, Sort of in a similar vein, looking beyond the next year, you know, which I think is going to be sort of a slow burn continuation of 2020, what long-term impacts do you think the pandemic will have on restaurants and our food culture, if um, any? That's such an interesting question. I, What's your crystal ball well, say? Trend <laughs> forecasting with Amy. I think that guests will have a lot more empathy for restaurant workers in the long term than they had before, which would be a great development if that were the case. I think this kind of political awakening of the restaurant industry at large, whether it's owners, whether it's through organizations like Roar and IRC, or just even staff being like, you know what, I don't deserve to be treated this way. Like, just this kind of like, oh, we should advocate for ourselves, whether that is through formal channels or informally, like that I think is so important and so wonderful. And it's been being able to work with you on Roar has been, I think, one of the silver linings of this pandemic, because it is so true that pre-pandemic, we were all just so busy running our restaurant, being in service, being on the floor to ever think about, oh, wait, why are the rules the way they are? Why do we make so little money as an industry? Why are there constantly these taxes and these rules, these burdensome policies that we have to deal with? If that kind of advocacy on behalf of restaurant workers in the restaurant industry continued after the pandemic, which I think it will, it would be amazing. Previously, like I feel like every restaurant was its own silo. You didn't really know what the rules were. Maybe you occasionally got an email from like, the SBA or the SLA about some kind of permit needing to be renewed. But there was no alliance. There was no kind of like industry chat about what's going on with your restaurant. Why are payroll taxes so high? Why is it so hard to get your warehouse permit renewed? Like just, I think questions that every business owner, restaurant owner was dealing with, but felt like they were just doing by themselves. And there was the NRA, the National Restaurant Association, but they represent such big restaurants that I think the goals and the values are just really different. It's hard to represent an individual restaurant like King that's a single unit in a neighborhood restaurant and also represent like the giant massive company that owns Wendy's, Burger King, Taco Bell. Like I think it's just super different to try to advocate for all restaurants like that. IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, that's the national one, and Roar, which is the New York-based independent restaurant organization. Those have been much more meaningful because I think independent restaurants really are kind of its own category. We don't have CEOs. We tend to be owner-operators. We tend to agree on certain things like how to deal with the tip credit, et cetera, et cetera. I think, yeah, 
those have been incredible. And Camilla, you've played such an amazing role in getting those off the ground and continuing to make sure that we are focusing on like the big topic issues, because it is a moment for us to really advocate as an industry, a moment that we've really never had before. I am in your camp of our community finding its voice for itself. I think we've always relied on others, agents, other types of representative groups, but it's different when, Annie, you've been amazing in testifying in multiple hearings and getting on the phone with so many lawmakers with time that you certainly don't have. But it does go a long way. When a lawmaker hears from the person who actually bears the consequences and who understands the nuance of the impact, it's just different than sort of playing a game of telephone, right? And I think we've seen that that has had extraordinary progress, certainly not nearly as much as we need. And we continue to fight day by day, brick by brick, but it has had an impact to look at the vaccine priority and being able to know that us as owners and us as a community fought really hard for our people to be in line with vaccine priority alongside grocery workers, right? Who have a large lobby and who've been involved in these conversations far before we have. Yeah, definitely. That was a huge moment. And I, it seemed kind of crazy that like indoor dining would reopen with these more contagious variants before restaurant workers would be eligible for the vaccine. It's so obvious to us, but if, if you're not kind of banging your stick on the pots and pans, like no one's going to really pay attention to you which is crazy, but I guess that's the reason why you have advocacy groups. What's the biggest hurdle and goal that you're personally invested in, you know, in the next year, two years, you know, maybe near future from a regulatory or advocacy standpoint? What's your golden ring that you're reaching for for the uh, industry? That's such a good question. I think something has to be done about the kind of wage disparity between front and back of house and also this dependence on tipping for front of house. It's an incredibly complicated question and to untangle it would be another couple of hours with you, Camilla. So I'm not going to go into all the details, but just that that needs to change. Wages shouldn't depend on the generosity of the guests. It should just be part of the price. And I think there's been historically in the past few years, like restaurants have really not been raising prices as food has gotten more expensive. You know, like we talk so much about like wanting all these things, like wanting produce that comes from farms that, you know, kind of farm organically or wanting meat that comes from a humanely raised farm or wanting to provide health benefits to staff and wanting all these things. And I think guests are the ones who want all these things too sometimes more than restaurant owners, but it's not possible to want all these things and still pay $18 for a burger. And so there is a massive disparity between, I think, what the average guest is willing to pay and what the actual cost is. And the person that has been bearing that burden is the restaurant owner in a way, because I've heard from some GMs who have said that in the past seven years that they've been working in this industry, they've seen their net profit go from 12, 13% to like these days, seven to 8%. And these are very successful restaurants that are doing extremely well. And if you ask the average startup or business person or entrepreneur, like they would never open a business that like had profit margins that low. And I think ultimately a restaurant is a business. It's not a nonprofit. It's not a charity. It's not a passion project. It has to be a business. And I think the way the restaurant business model has evolved over the past seven years 
decade, you can call it, has made it less of a business and more of almost a nonprofit because the way that things are priced and what things cost means that at the end of the day, like you're working extremely long hours, working incredibly hard for something that barely makes any money. And that just, that's not sustainable long-term. You're not going to be, you're not going to have a strong, robust industry that's attracting talent with that kind of business model. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, while we won't delve deep into it, I will give a short primer, which is, again, when you think about the perspective of other industries and other businesses, most people are shocked to understand that as an owner, to pay your teams in various positions, you have regulations from the city, the state, and the federal government, and the end user, i.e. the guest, which is pretty wild, right? For different complete bodies that get to be a component that enforce how you get to compensate your team, you know, is pretty unprecedented, I would say, outside of our industry and, and not to its advantage. And I think, you know, something you'd mentioned earlier about the pandemic, you know, you were instrumental. We worked as Roar based on actually King's paradigm of interacting with guests and how to protect teams and how to think about health and safety as a two-way, more full scope ecosystem. And we did the guest diner mm-hmm. 10 about sort of how to interact together. And we did our own sort of for us bias campaign. And it was hugely successful. And we had so much outreach from the public, from lawmakers, from media, you know, really grateful for that. And that came so much from you and your thought that you had put into to how you were running King. But that's a great example, right, of so a diner's angry about having to wear a mask. They're then going to penalize in the mm-hmm. form of a tip. That's almost insanity. That someone's compensation for showing up for work, working hard, putting their life on the line, risking their health to take care of someone. And then that person on a whim gets to decide. The word for me has always come down to value. And we need to be readjusting value in this industry, both what you pay, but also compensation. And I think again, the year of great reckoning, I think is about what we as a public value, what we as government, you know, our government representatives value and what we as owners value and trying to get those better aligned because you're right. I just think we've been sort of left in the wind as it relates to what it really means to run a restaurant. Yeah, completely. And like Westbourne is such an amazing model for how to do it. Like so much admiration for how you train your team, pay your team, take care of your team. It's just, it's, it, and you know firsthand, like it's not cheap, nor should it be. Nor should and, it be. And it, yeah, it just comes down to like how much are we as the kind of dining public willing to pay for it? And it's a really tough question because you also want to be accessible to as many people as possible. You don't want to price people out of food or of dining out. Like there, it's it's an incredibly complicated question. And tipping is, you know, kind of the entryway point into it because tipping culture, for all the reasons that we just talked about, is super unfair. I think it will shake out in the next five years. I really do. I just think we need to just all work and figure out how we can each, as individual restaurants, approach that problem. So as sort of the capstone to this, and as you know, Annie, I feel like we could talk for hours. There is there are so many layers to our industry and what's particularly been happening this year. But, you know, this is all about the future of women and looking ahead. What do you see as what's next for New York City, the independent restaurant industry 
part of our universe, the neighborhood restaurant, and and how can we dine better in the future as the public? Sure. I have full faith that New York, as one of the world's best dining destinations, will come back in full force. I don't doubt that for a second, and it's not just because I'm a New Yorker. I think that everyone is missing more than ever the kind of intimacy and the socialness of being at a restaurant, you know, talking to friends and my partner, like everyone, what they want the most, they're like, oh, we just wish you could be at a bar, kind of jostling elbows with our next door neighbor, <laughs> maybe having a small chat, watching a bartender shake a margarita, like just all of those moments that make restaurants and eating out so special. Like those are what people long for the most right now. And I can't imagine that when we are able to do that again, people wouldn't want to. I feel very optimistic about the future of the restaurant industry in New York. I think that we have developed as an industry much better connections with each other. I think the network for independent restaurants is stronger than ever. And it's been such a wonderful part of this pandemic is like how how managers, restaurant owners, staff, like we're all reaching out to each other. I feel like I've stronger friendships with other people in this industry than I've ever had before. There are people that like will check in on me and just be like, hey, how are things going? Like, how's this week been? Like, how are you dealing with indoor dining? What's the PPP situation like? Like, and I do the same. Like I check in on other people and I'm like, are you okay? <laughs> Have you gotten your forgiveness application? And like, it's both an emotional support group. Yeah, people don't realize <laughs> we, yeah. we desperately need it. And it's so <laughs> great. I remember that was one of the best things about opening a restaurant was the amount of support we got. And I think that's just in the nature of people who work in restaurants is to be hospitable and supportive and kind to each other. And I think people think, oh, you guys must all be so competitive because it's New York and restaurants are, you know, there's so many, but it's not at all the case. It's the exact opposite. I know that's here to stay, but that's been a wonderful silver lining to all of this. So many restaurants have had to close and so often for reasons that are just beyond their control, mostly having to do with a bad landlord. But I think there is so much camaraderie as well. And I'm really hopeful that it means for everyone else who wants to open a restaurant in the future that they feel like there are more resources, more people they can contact, more help that they can seek out than ever before. And what do you think is the future? What's next for how we can all dine better going forward? It sounds obvious, but just like put yourself in their shoes. Like don't take out your frustration with serving staff. Like if you're having a bad day, like keep it to yourself like don't snap at your server it's very small things but I think that golden rule of just put yourself in their shoe and and try to imagine their experience and would you want to be treated the same way I think everyone should work in a restaurant at some point in their lives it's an incredibly humbling experience and I think that will kind of give a little bit more empathy to the situation but everyone who works in a restaurant works incredibly long physical hours and work so hard to kind of be hospitable to every table and like make sure that everyone has a great time. If something happens and there's a mistake in your experience, I think we should just remember that the first rule is not to get angry or not to like kind of snap at someone, but to try to be understanding. And I think that's the key. I'm not saying that there aren't instances where there are are massive mistakes or errors or restaurants that don't care. But I think just being a little bit more generous in your compassion and empathy for people who work in restaurants is would be a great starting point.
Well, you heard it here first. And I think, Annie, you've encapsulated it. It's the golden rule and the inside out mentality, which is truly a momentous shift coming out of 2020 and setting for the future of this industry. Sounds simple, harder in practice, and I think will truly create a very different ecosystem going forward. Well, thank you, Annie, for your time, your wisdom, your leadership, your hustle and advocacy. You do a lot of the invisible work, as I said, numerous times testifying, putting together paradigms for all of us to take note and follow, and while creating such a beautiful experience at King. So we're so grateful to have you on the podcast. Thank you. And how can everyone follow along and stay in contact? So definitely follow King's Instagram. It's at king.newyork. One of my favorite things to look at <laughs> when I'm not at the restaurant. And then I'm also on Instagram at annie.h.she. And please feel free to, you know, DM me or, you know, email me if you have any questions. My email is annie at kingrestaurant.nyc. I'm always happy to chat or answer questions or anything.